Darren, you just need to take yourself off mute and we can get started. Excellent. Fantastic. Appreciate your patience with my technology. Uh, mate, I'm not that far in front or behind of you, depending on which way we're going with it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so in the interest of time, Darren, let's get stuck into it. Um, how can I help you? Yep. Uh, so, is it, sorry, I thought we were just going to have a general chat about... Anything you... Yep, yep. Is that, is that correct? Anything you want to yep. chat about, Darren? Yeah, it's like um, it's like this. You know, people train for sport and they get pretty excited about themselves. And they, when they improve aspects of their sport preparation, uh, but when they're sitting on the bench in the reserves bench or in the in the bleachers, as they say in America, um, in their in their suit in their their uh, number ones, not 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 suited up to play because they're injured. It's all mute, yep. isn't it? Correct. Everything is yeah. mute if you don't if you don't have the ability to be there. Number one, perform. Number two. Yeah. Um, and with your mindset and the way the body works, like how did you start linking in the body relating to one another and um, just basically organising your own formula with how it all works? A very good question. It's actually a very pertinent question because I have come to the conclusions that my approach to the body is a total approach in itself in other words and i've really intuitively stayed away from referring to what i do as a training method and what i do is not a training method it's a complete way of viewing the body and this is where this is where people who who seek to take a little bit of what i do struggle because you know it's all very good to pick and cherry pick what you want etc but when the fork in the road occurs very early in the thinking then everything after that becomes lost I, yeah. I know that may sound very um, philosophical, but you know, if if two paths are divergent in the early stages, then it's really difficult to fully benefit from the concept. So this has been uh, a long journey for me, and I mean long. I mean, I remember as a kid, I wanted to play and I, and I wanted to compete, but I, for some reason, I knew that I didn't know I didn't know how to do it. As in. Where I was raised, you know, in, in a village-like environment in an era where there was no TV, no trains, no tall buildings, no takeaway food, no bitumen roads, you know, it was a very much a village yeah. environment. The only, only thing you could do was play, and, you know, village and uh, island boys and girls are very good at play. We had play sorted in a way that, you know, most developed yeah. Western worlds don't have. So we had that sorted, but I wanted to know what were the, uh, the more formal things I could do to complete the play aspect. So that's what I went on a search for, and... Um, that's what led me to study at university, and I know I didn't go there to, to get a job, or you know, it's just purely um, personal search, and that led me to athletes wanting to train with me. So it was in an era in the in the in the early 80s when I was at uni where there wasn't much for, um, in publication about how to train, which was good. I had to work it out myself. So yeah. I, I I did note what people were doing. I you know I was a you know, I was getting some journals, etc., etc., and obviously I, I read my research and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, over the decades, I've come to realize that what I do is so removed from what everyone else is doing that it is completely different. So how did I get here? I got here because I asked a simple question, what's the best way to train? And 
in the absence of any other guidance, I made made uh, some my own conclusions, and then when the when the uh, other conclusions began appearing in mainstream publishing, I would look at them, I would test them, and I'd say, ah, yeah, no, um, you know, so I went probably a bit younger, remember, so things like you know, the the approach to periodization appeared in in Australia in the late 80s and saying, you know, this is how you've got you've got to have an endurance base and all this sort of stuff. You know, I, I gave it all respect and and, and tested everything uh, and, and ultimately rejected it. But um, for me, the the ultimate now is, is the key is understanding the body in, in terms of reading the body's messages. For me, uh, everything else is really mute. Everything else is really redundant. If a person fails to... to be able to read the body because the body has all the messages that you need to have it's just a matter of how you yeah. read it and obviously people read it in different ways i read it in a certain way um so you know th there would be a lot of people on the same page at the moment when i say read the body but then you know as to how you read the body then we start to getting in a few different options but to answer your question yeah, i do believe what i've created is a completely unique original and holistic way to view the body and i'm, I'm on the verge of or formalizing it to a greater extent. Oh, that's awesome. And do you, because I, uh, as a physical therapist as well, like, um, you know, for me, um, I believe, uh, you know, the fight or flight response plays a massive impact and a massive role in the way the body works. Um, and one of my favorite muscles is like flexor hallucis longus. Um, and, you know, how we grip the ground and how the foot works and the adrenal function and, and you know, just basically, are we stuck in the fight or flight response? Um, and do you find people, uh, you know, physically bringing in a lot more garbage these days than what we have in the past? Well, there is, um, we're looking at a totally different body, uh, these yeah. days. We, we, fortunately I, I, I've been through a few eras. So at first you had a body that, <laughs> that played, that played, only played the sport and the adaptations of the body were purely sport specific. Yes. Then you had an era where it was in Australia post-1995 where in particular high school students were being exposed to the American strength and conditioning approach. And that yeah. presented a whole new body which had adaptations that were irrelevant to their sport and in essence doubled the body's damage. Yeah. So, yeah, we have, um, we have a whole new body. Basically... It's rare now for me to receive an athlete and not be faced with a significant injury rehabilitation issue that has was caused by non-specific training. Whereas back uh, you know, 30 years ago, if they had injuries that were purely sport-related, they were fairly easily and quickly reversed. Now it's a little different. So yeah, it's um, and that's just the physical stuff we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So then what part uh, is preventative versus performance related? Well, that is a good thing. And this is, um, this is what's the, the point that I, I, I recognize I have to get better at getting my message across in, 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 broader, in, in the broader way. Uh, in a, I started thinking of them as two separate entities when I became aware yeah. of uh, prevention. But what I, what I teach now is a little bit different. And I... I think if you read the blog article, um, Dysfunction, basically in any training, if there's a collective adaptation that is either negative in the medium 
in the short, medium, or long term, then you're creating dysfunction. So it's no longer, and for me, it's no longer about is it performance enhancing or is it injury prevention work that I'm doing. I just want to know is is the sum of the adaptations from the stimulus that I'm presenting going to result ultimately in enhancement or decrement? Because most of the time, people are spending in a period where they're declining physically, but they don't know it. Yeah. And they only realize it when the symptoms are manifest themselves to a point where they can't ignore it. And that is potentially, you know, five to 20% of the time. You know, the other 80 to 95% of the time, they're in decline if they, if they knew how to read the body or if they knew cause-effect relationships in the way that I do, then they would take a different tact. So basically, they're, they're running into trouble that, that they don't know. And unfortunately, the people that, that are guiding them don't know because... First of all, people aren't. There's not a lot of experience in the marketplace, and secondly, there's not a lot of awareness about the cause-effect relationship between stimulus and response in terms of performance. So, unfortunately, most of what people are doing physically will ultimately result in a performance decrement. In other words, it's creating dysfunction, and it's occurring before they even know it's occurring. Yeah. And what do you think is the biggest thing people miss? The, the biggest thing missing is two things. First of all, it's, it's willing to be objective and let go of the ego because the ego desire to protect us and we want to be right and we want to be good and we want to be significant and we want to have a positive impact. So it's almost a case of no matter what I do, I'm going to conclude in advance that what I'm doing is right. Yes. Now, I don't know the impact of what I'm going to do until a certain time frame has been achieved. Typically, yeah. seven to ten years is a is a good medium time frame to determine the effect of your training. So if yeah. I if if I conclude prior to having adequate experience of the cause effect relationships from a seven to ten year time frame, I'm stuffed. If I believe I'm right, I'm stuffed, and that's what we've got. We've got people who don't have that don't have that awareness, concluding that they're on track. So the first limiting factor is human ego. The second limiting factor yeah. is people have not, generally speaking, given the opportunity to have those long-term, you know, the longitudinal study. And when I when I entered, it was I was the only one doing what I was doing in Australia, and therefore I trained everybody who was anybody. And I know that sounds a little yeah. bit American, but that that's a reality uh, because I was the only one earning, and I was the only one who, who available, the only one offering those services. This is before the word strength and conditioning was known in Australia. So I, I had that rare opportunity of training people, and I'm talking about hundreds of athletes I trained for in excess of 10 years. And so I was able to make some very uh, objective conclusions. In addition to that, I was pretty humble, and I, I, I didn't believe I knew what I was doing. I, I was on a journey and I was um, very objective with myself. So I, I applied the scientific approach in a world that I suggest is not very scientific. Mm. Because that's the thing is that everyone everyone has an opinion or everyone has a belief but does it, does it hold up under the test of time and or the stress of competition? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the only thing that, that, that has judged what, we, what I do. The results with the athletes is the only thing that matters. And 
you know, people say, you do that because you believe in that. No, I don't, I don't do that because I believe in that. I do that because it's the best way that I've found to do it. And if I find a better way, you know, I'll, I'll be tweaking it. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm willing to get rid of everything that I've believed to be true if something mm-hmm. better comes along. Absolutely. And, and, and the, the area that I've spent the last four decades in is, is a good area in that when you're an Olympian, generally speaking, it's the only time in sport where you compete with everybody in the world. So if you're an Olympic yes. medalist, you are literally the top three in the world at that time. Mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you have someone like that, like, you know, uh, is there people that you will work with versus people that you won't? And, and where do you start with people? Oh, absolutely. I'm very selective, um, more so now. I'm, yep. I'm, more, I'm very open to referrals, like people I've worked with in the past who they refer, because that's, you know, I always want to look after the family and friends. That's my first port of call, but if it's non yes. if it's non referral, then we go through a pretty solid pre qualification, because yes. I want it to work, and not everything yeah. not everything's going to work. Yeah, yeah. So I've knocked because back. I must say, like, uh, yeah, I've knocked back a fair I, bit. I, I, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Like I loved your work that you did with Lisa Curry, like you know, uh, and what she was able to achieve, um, and just you know the the strength that she had. But, the injury resistance that she had and the performance like, was just brilliant. Mm. That was a great example, wasn't it? And when they tried to replicate that a decade later, because at that era, we were heavily criticised uh, for doing strength training because in that time in swimming, in the late 80s and the early 90s, strength training was considered bad uh, and you know it, would, it, was, it was unnecessary. Uh, and then they turned around uh, over a decade later and, and, and embraced it, but they embraced it in a way where they all end up having taped shoulders and, and shoulder surgery. So, you know, the, the, yeah. it wasn't a good look. So, so uh, not at all. And, and you look at all the, just from an Australian perspective, the number of swimmers that have had surgeries. Yeah, it's tragic. You know, I, I, I'd never heard of surgery in swimming until you know the world turned around about 2000 and 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 I have I have my theories about that and you know especially Australia um you know the, the things changed in particular in Australia from an injury perspective um around about 2000 give or take a few years and there are just different outcomes it's just a, it's a whole new world and people think it's normal it's not normal it's not necessary all injuries are completely predictable and preventable mm. And so when you're working with someone, what's one of the first things you look for? Attitude. There you go. So it's not even body related. It's just, you know, how their attitude is. Yeah. So I work in a different space. I work in a space where I want to be the best in the world. I want to work with people who want to be the best in the world. And I prefer to work with a challenge that no one else can solve. So just Olympian yeah. is boring. You know, getting a medal is boring, um, so to speak. I mean, it's not completely boring. But... Oh, yeah. Fixing somebody who 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 is completely at the end of their wits, and getting them back to the winners uh, in a winner's circle or back on the podium, you know that's where to my, where my space is. And I've, I realise that I've got limited time and limited time uh, that I'll dedicate to one on one work now. So I'm I'm more selective. Uh, so that's what I'm looking for. I, I want to know, you know, can we win? Um, you know, can, can can your attitude and my attitude come together and result in winning and create a winning winning formula? Yeah. And is there different like modalities or different uh, tools that you use to get the results that you're after? Oh, I'm really, really uh, equipment uninterested. There, there is really nothing about about equipment 
um, either in training or in rehabilitation that interests me virtually. I mean, I'm, I have a very simplistic approach. Uh, in, in a, and I've reached a lot of conclusions that obviously take me a while to get to, but, and, and none of them are palatable to the, to the masses, but equipment calls the shots in training, and it's inappropriate. Yeah. It's totally inappropriate. Equipment dictates exercise selection and training method. Yes. And, and people think it's the other way around, it, it, and I'll expose this more over the years, but the reality is it's equipment that's calling the shots. There, there wouldn't be such a thing as a functional training movement if there wasn't a company who worked out they could change from being a track and field equipment supplier to being a small equipment supplier and, and make us a lot more than they used to. You know, they, they, yeah, right. they, manufacturers and distributors of equipment keep things alive. They create myths and they, and they, and they facilitate them. So for me, if, if, when people are locked into that belief that they're equipment dependent, you know, if we can't, um, if I can't empty their mind in, in our pre-qualification, then we probably don't have, you know, much future. Um, but you know, I've got to yeah. tell you, athletes are pretty sharp. They're not fools. You know, they'll tolerate yeah. some bullshit. But they, they're not generally speaking. They're not fools. And so when they talk to me, they know that you know we're on track. It's it's never about equipment. Like you know, I, I put people on the podium with with so little equipment and in training, and even less in in the rehabilitation perspective. So yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's not about that. Yeah, wow. So, do you have um, uh, favourite moves or sequences for, for specific dysfunctions or patterns that people present with? No, not really. I mean, obviously, I, I guess in some ways I do, but that's not my primary thought. My primary thought is what's holding them back from being the best they can be. Yep. And and I have to in, innovate. I mean, what what the world is doing in, in part is diluted imitations of what I taught many years ago, and they've misguidingly yep. believed that this is what I do or what you should do. Like. I'll innovate to the situation. So, you know, there are yes. some core fundamentals, such as, you know, the, the control of the humerus and the role of the scapula. There's some core fundamentals. But the the pathology of the person and the, the, you know, the nature of the injury, the nature of the sport will dictate how I present them. So I've got a, a lot of strategies that I use to get the results um, in, in a diverse conditions and in diverse sport needs. So, yeah, there, there would be some core fundamentals, but the, the delivery is far more complicated because, you know, people think, oh, well, you know, I introduced a word called flutter or a word called scarecrow, and therefore, bang, we'll go and do them. Um, it's, you know, it's a very um, non-thinking approach, and I, I, I don't endorse that. I want, people to, I want people to learn how to think so that they can interpret the needs of the person and adapt the exercise to suit the person. Correct. And if it's a little tweak here or a tweak there with an arm position or a hand position or whatever the situation merits, but that is what gets the better results. And, and there's no better way to find that out than in, in, than in, in rehabilitation from chronic injury. So when you're coming back, you learn more from when you're going down. That's just another one of my signs. Right. Yeah, yeah. So then what direction do you see it going in the future? Do you, do you, do you see an improvement? Do you see it uh, you know, going forwards, backwards? Um, the industry? So one way to answer that question, and I often ask that, is to look back historically and I ask myself what's, in, what's changed. And if you were to use, say, injury incidents as a measurement of, of success in training, it would be very difficult to say there's been advancement. Mm. So in summary, I actually think we've gone backwards. And yeah. we've gone backwards because of the influence of um, the commercial influence. 
So the the manufacturers and the distributors of equipment in particular have have clouded the issue so much that I'll give an example. In a pure American influence, you you will never do an exercise unless you're holding something. Yeah. You've got to be holding something because if you're doing an exercise where you're not holding something, you're not making them money. Yeah, right. So, you know, there was once a push-up. So what's a push-up become yeah. now? You've got to have these little paddles on your hand. You've got to slide them up and down. Yeah. You know, I, I saw a clip on the, on the internet recently where a, a basketballer, they were doing the bastardized version of my single-leg stiff-legged deadlift, and then they had a kettlebell in the other hand, and then they are jumping there, and it was like a circus trick. It had nothing to do. It was not helping the athlete. It wouldn't transfer to the sport. It was a completely useless waste of time, but he was holding a piece of equipment, and that's all that mattered. So, yeah, training has gone nowhere. You know, with, with the advent of technology, we, we, can, we can do GPS trackings that we couldn't do before. We, we can, we've got technology on our side, but... What have been the advancements in the ability to individualise a training program? None whatsoever. I, I can I can tell you, you will not find anybody in this industry, other than my, my coaches, my top end coaches, who can individualise a training program to my satisfaction. I know that might be a little bit subjective or biased, but like, let's be real. The concept of individualisation has advanced nowhere in forty years. It, it, it was it was lip, it was lip service in textbooks in the eighties. And it's, I don't think it's even lip service anymore. When you look at the dominant training methods, like what's a solution for, what's a commercial solution advocated in the American fitness industry? Group training or semi-private training. And, and you've got CrossFit and you've got, you know, all these other class oriented. So no one's interested in individualization. So no, training has not advanced. Now, if, if in my 40 years of in the industry, training has not advanced, where, what is the future held? Are, are humans getting more willing to, um, break away from dominant influences or be non-conformist? I don't think so. Um, has, is, is marketing or, or commercial trends going to diminish? I don't think so. Like, we'd have to have a substantial revolution in humans, you know, which the, you know, the age of Pisces, um, the age of Aquarius did, did promise, but um, I haven't seen it. Mm, yeah. And is there... Um you know, personally, what, where do you see yourself moving, like, in the next sort of, uh, you know, few years, decades going forwards? So my goal is to complete record, completely record my artefacts in the time I have on the planet. And, yep. and that includes continual developments that we're making. But ideally to embody them in a way that they're, they're taught as a standalone rather than, uh, like, I can pick from this shelf, I can pick from that shelf and add it to inverted commas strength and conditioning. I, yeah. I, I really want to distance myself and, 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 and get the message across that this is a completely different way of looking at the body. In the same way that uh, osteopathy presented, naturopathy presented, the chiropractic presented, uh, all of these disciplines were successfully presented as different ways of viewing the body rather than just another yeah. ad, adjunct to medicine uh, in the conventional sense. So that would be one of the greatest things that I, I would like to see happen to, to have that and that's my it's my responsibility to have it presented as a, as a standalone approach because we know how good it is, we know how effective it is, but we haven't really got that message across to the masses adequately. And how how close do you believe you are to actually achieving that? Well, it's just scratching the surface. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, put it this way: as a, as it stands at the moment, if it, my my level one course is $500, right? 
You can go and do a level one course with the dominant Australian professional organisation in strength and conditioning, pay the same amount of money, and the content will be different, and I'm going to be as polite as I can be, and uh, they'll get an accreditation, so they'll tick a box. So, you know, we've got thousands of people a year doing that, but relatively speaking, very few people in Australia looking at what I do. Now, I don't share that from a from a, a, a negative perspective or uh, they're not my competition, but the reality is the majority of people will do certification if they have to or if we get them an insurance policy or get them some credits. Very few people will actually seek to educate for the purposes of becoming better. I want to be the best I can be. So at, at this point in time, that's who we attract, the people who say, I want to be the best I can be. And that's not many people because there's this... And that's where... Yeah, and that's where you're doing that selectively with your athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to be the best I possibly can be, and that's why they'll seek you out. But then you're also doing that for people that are attending your courses. You know, not everyone wants to actually improve. Some people love their dysfunction. Absolutely, and because that means they're like everybody else, and that's that's warming. Right. That's warming to them, and and they have this expectation that. You know, when I was told that if I did this, this would happen, then they, at some point in time in their career, they wonder why they don't have the income or they don't have the job security or they don't have the job satisfaction and they feel that, you know, they feel a little bit let down by society. Well, you know, it's the, the safest place to be in the world is, is, is being fulfilled from your fulfillment of yourself as your, your skill set, not conforming. Mm-hmm. You know, conforming doesn't really give you um, everything you want out of life, but, you know, you know, you, as paths are established more many let's say I, I was a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer with an established career path and I just conformed I could have a good income and a good life but the physical preparation industry doesn't even have that and when I say a good life I, I, you know, I don't think you're fulfilling potential if you're doing what you, everyone else is doing but uh, that, that suits a lot of people uh, I've got a lot of you know, friends and colleagues in those industries but the physical preparation industry doesn't even have that you know the, the the idea of success in this industry is that, okay, you, you can't get many clients because you deliver crappy service and your programs mm. aren't very effective, so let's, let's solve the problem by doing semi-private training or group training and um, let's magnify the crappiness that you provide and have more people paying for the same crap at the same time. So the, the, I just don't see how that's an economic successfully model. If you're still delivering yeah. crap, it doesn't work for me. And, uh, like, with people that do your course and courses, like, um, you know, would you say the majority of them then go on to be successful based on the knowledge, just in, in regardless of what their personality type's like? So we are, like, no, uh, we're no different than, than any other form of human endeavour. The percentage who start and the percentage who, who reach higher level, there yeah. is a, there is a, there's a drop-off. So... You know, of, yeah. of every hundred people who might start at say level O or level one, you might yes. have, you might have you know ten percent there five years later. So, and that and that's also based on you know once again there's a qualifying process. You know, people that start the course go, no, nah, bugger this, too hard. Don't want to put in any effort. Well, oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, and that's you, you just got to it's human it's human nature, and so. Yes. I'm not. I'm not going to make any predictions for people until they reach a level of mastery, which, yeah. generally speaking, you know, with, if you're committed to to uh, the KSOA and the education I provide, you know, within about three years you'd be rocking it 
pretty well. Um, and I have a general in indication of, of how it impacts your income. And the income that that is earned by our high-level coaches is consistently higher than industry average. I mean, consistently higher and considerably higher. So you know, when a coach is earning, uh, as some of them do, let's say $200 an hour, not just occasionally, but that's their standard rate. They're in a they're in a whole new area. I mean, if they were if they had twenty billable hours a week, they're on two hundred thousand dollars a year. So I've got coaches who range between one hundred fifty and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and don't even work full time. Yeah, wow. So that sort of income is not available to anybody who follows mainstream education unless yeah. they stumble. For example, um, in the NFL. In the last few years, there's been a, a change in the NCAA ruling, not the NFL, in, in the college. Um, in, in American football, there's a, there was a, a rule change, which you know they've got rules about how much time a coach can spend, but if it was a strength and conditioning coach, they could spend more. So you know, there's a few inverted commas strength and conditioning coaches, which are really um, football coaches uh, getting paid you know, quite substantial income uh, because they were found a way to get circumvent those, those rules. But generally speaking, there aren't too many people in physical preparation who are going to earn anywhere near what I would consider appropriate for a professional. Like you go to uni for four yeah. years or equivalent, and then you come out and you're a personal trainer for the rest of your life on 50 bucks an hour. Um, you know, yeah. that's, that's not a professional income. So yeah, what, what we achieve is what a professional should be achieving, but what the industry is achieving is not. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing too, it's like you see a lot of people that do the, the courses in whatever qualification they have at the university standard come out thinking they know something when the reality is they don't actually know much at all. Well, no one can leave the university really knowing what to do. They've got a, they've got a, mm. a certain um, study habit developed and they've got some fundamental theory, um, you know, they've got the fundamental understanding of what, you know, uh, what objective uh, rational thinking should be, but you know, no employee is going to tell you that they are really going to be competent at what they do. So you know, that's just reality. Uh, but we don't go any further. And worse than that, we like, if, if you take strength training compared to all the other three physical qualities of flexibility, speed, and endurance, strength training has the one that changes the body functionally and structurally faster and more significant than the others. And if you put someone into a strength program, you can change the shape of their body for better or worse fairly quickly and for life. It's very hard to reverse. It's reversible, but it's harder. Now, we allow people who really don't know what they're doing to do that, and we allow people to do that to our children. And I don't make too many friends in the industry, but I'm telling you now, there are very few people that are qualified to deal with children. It's one thing if you're an adult, there's a little bit of what's the buyer beware, you know, if they're silly enough to go and train with someone, good luck to them. The, the group that I have most concern for is the kids who, who trust that the adult knows what they're doing. So, you know, we, we've had since 1995 in Australia, that's 22 years now of kids coming through mandatory almost um, strength programs at school. They're mandatory. Like, you can't play elite sport at school now. You can't play school sport at some private schools if you don't do the strength and conditioning program. And what they're doing is the parents are paying 20 to 40 grand a year for a person who doesn't know what they're doing to damage their children for life. You know, it just yes. it doesn't make sense to me, but that's the that's the standard of, of what the consumer is is tolerating in the industry. So from a, so from a kid's perspective then, like um, 
you said you don't use much equipment. It's mostly body weights, things. Like, at what age do we start looking at dysfunction? Well, dysfunction is evident from the get-go. And that, that's the, yeah. screen, the screening process is, is irrelevant. Like, it's, it's redundant. It doesn't exist. So you, you've got genetic contribution. You've got genetic disposition to injury, which needs to be taken into account. You've got emotional... Yeah. Psychosomatic conditions. The birthing process as well. Yeah, the birthing process. You've got you've got genetic disposition. The birthing process. You've got emotional psychosomatic contribution to the physical status. You've got training yep. history. You, you've got you've got a you've got a list of four or five things before you're twelve that need to be yep. taken into account in the design of a program for for a, a young person. They're not none of the things are taken into account, which is why yep. ACL surgery in the 2000 to 2015 period in Australia in the younger age group increased by 75%. Like we have got the highest incidence of ACL surgery per capita. And obviously the statistics for all countries aren't clear, but it is Mm. being proposed that we have the highest per capita incidence of ACL surgery in this country. So what I'm saying is if you send your child to school and you get them involved in the inverted comma strength conditioning program at school, the chance of them having shoulder surgery, knee surgery or similar before they leave high school is pretty high. Mm. So then, with all those people with kids, what should we do? Because um, we want to do the right, we want to do the right thing, um, you know. And, and it's the the lack of knowingness of what the right thing is. What would you recommend? Well, I do my best to educate, but in reality, yeah. when you when you're when you're preaching something that is considered controversial, um, I, I've been called a maverick so many times by the American media, sorry, the Australian media, and I mean we're called worse in America. That it's just boring, you know. All you can do is provide education, but the reality is, most people are going to do what most people do, and yes. it's, it's considered normal. And uh, in Australia, we've we've even we've overshot America. Like America uh, have for many decades believed that success lies in the gym. You know, we're, we're taking even more. Like I, I think our kids are even more talented from a, a movement pattern perspective than the Americans, because we haven't. I mean, we're getting it more Americanized now. But from a food and and, and uh, technology perspective, our kids are still play probably a little bit more active than the Americans. And we're taking a better better specimen and wrecking them in the American way. You know, in, yes. in the belief that you know the the, the strength training is a panacea, and we're creating a whole new yeah. set of problems. So I, I don't know. Whenever I work with parents, I just tell them outright. Unfortunately. Um, at this stage of the history of the world, if you allow your child to participate in your school strength and conditioning program, I wish you all the best. <laughs> yeah, right. So then, is there uh, certain sports that you would recommend, or is there certain sports that you think shouldn't be played? Well, there, there's definitely sports that I recommend. Um, there's a handful of sports that I, I guide all young athletes to, to participate in. Uh, they're, they're the fundamental body control sports. Uh, which include gymnastics and track and field of some kind, and I'll come back. I can be, do, expand more on that. And the hand-eye and the foot-eye coordination sports. Uh, so you've got soccer is a great one. Um, you know, uh, basketball or similar hand-eye ball sport is a great one. Yep. Um, I, I like I like the I like the aerial control of the body that that can come through tumbling or gymnastics. And I yes. like I like martial arts um, more so from the you know from the kicking or, or ballet from the from the the ability to balance on one leg. So there's a lot of crossover between those two sports, not so much the, the new bastardised martial arts, but that, there's a few fundamentals I do recommend young people do, but um, you know, we're opening a whole new can of worms there because there's a, yeah. 
there's a there's this there's this belief in the in both America and Australia that the reason our young people are getting injured more is because we specialise at too early age. Well, that's not really the reason. It is a, a contributor, but the the bigger contributor is the fact that they're involved in strength conditioning. If any young person is injured, the first thing I say to them, the very first thing I say to them, are you currently involved in a strength conditioning program of any kind? And I'm going to tell you, 90 plus percent of them will answer in the affirmative. You know, there is an incredibly strong correlation, and that's your first problem. Do you find there's a, uh, you know, for example, like with gymnastics that you just mentioned, um, you know, we can go all the way up to a one-arm chin-up, but it gets to a stage where what's the point in turning that into a a sideshow versus performance benefits? Well, these sports provide fundamental movement. You should only specialise in in them if if you're going to see a career in them. So I don't don't expect anyone to, um, I don't expect anyone to to specialise in them per se. I, I do expect them yep. to get the, the, fun, the fundamentals from them and, and then they can choose their path from that. The, the, there are a few sports left that still believe in stretching. Um, gymnastics yes. being, being one of them, ballet being one of them, and, and some of the more traditional martial arts. And uh, unfortunately, one, one of them, and we haven't even touched upon this, in, in the brain-dead world that we live in, the, the, the dominant paradigm in inverted commas strength conditioning is that stretching is bad. You know, somewhere along the way... Um, and I can ex- you know, explain basically if you stretch, how much equipment are you using? Exactly, no. Not much. And if you stretch, are you reducing yep. the income of, of the medical industry? Yes. Absolutely. So you're, you're an economic threat. If you stretch because you'll have a reduced incidence of injury, you'll have yep. less turnover in all paramedical related fields. So you don't make money for, for the equipment manufacturers and you take money away from the medical industry. So there's no way in the world people are going to be allowed to stretch. That was shut down 20-something years ago. Um, yep. And uh, I don't see it coming back, but you know, that, that's a whole new discussion in itself. And you know, when you ask, uh, are we advancing or can we advance? Well, we can't advance until we recognise the role of shortening of connective tissue. If we don't, if we don't address the role of shortening of connective tissue... There is no future in sport improvement in terms of we can't advance. No, I can't say records can't be moved. Records can be moved, but collectively humans can't advance in sport in the absence of stretching. Right. And do you then uh, recommend people to sustain a stretch, to hold a stretch for a certain time? You know, the contract, relax, PNF type stretching. What do you? Which ones do you prefer personally? Well, I've repeated that pretty repetitively. Um, you know, I've been very, pretty vocal in that. You know, the, the, the old garden variety of static stretching is the number one way to change the connective tissue length. It is. It's just time. It's just, just doing it, isn't it? Absolutely. So there, there are other more esoteric methods, um, you know, such as you know, PNF, contract, relax, etc., etc. But realistically, from a, from a, you know, in a real world situation, static stretching isn't has always been my, my number one go-to with people. And I find too, like you, you look at connective tissue, and it's like connective tissue takes a while for it to get stuck. Uh, once it is, it takes a while for it to get unstuck. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's just that's just time in a position, isn't it? Absolutely. So you know, you swing a racket from the minute a kid swings a racket when they first turn up at say tennis. You know, by the end of the year, how many times have they swung the racket? By the end of their first four months in, the, in that sport, how many times have they swung the racket? Thousands. You know, yes. and, and, and so if you're not reversing the, sh- the, the, sh- the, sh- the, the shortcomings of sport from the get-go, you're playing some serious catch-up. 
Now we don't do that. We we don't we don't counter spore damage. We instead we not only allow it to happen, we then multiply it by compounding the issue by adding a non-specific, irrelevant stimulus called strength and conditioning. Mm. We we so basically do double the injury incidence. Yeah, yeah. And do you think there's a there's a uh, an average Joe stretch? that they should do? Is there, is there exercises that the average person should do? Well, absolutely. Uh, and if, if you went back into sport 30, 40 years ago, I, I, and I, I, you might not be as, as inverted commas young as I am, um, that's a joke, <laughs> but you know, everybody, everybody did some form of basic stretching back in, back in a more innocent period. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't yeah, frowned upon. It, 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 there weren't rumours about how, how it was bad for you or how it was going to make you weak. God forbid, or how it's going to make you injured, you know, like just all these other myths that have been perpetrated to maintain human behaviour. They didn't exist. So, yeah, people were doing stretches. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And um, what would you hope that, um, you know, most people would take from a, you know, just a lump of meat perspective? You know, we're living in a lump of meat, um, you know, how can we get the most out of it? What do you think we should be doing on a daily basis? So this is the irony. When we've got a motor vehicle, what would happen to the motor vehicle if we'd never serviced it? Exactly. It wouldn't it last very long, would it? Rack and ruin. Absolutely. So when people spend you know, 20 to 120 grand or whatever their budget is on a motor vehicle, they're probably going to go and service it according to the book schedule. So yeah. human thinks that their, their, their body is like a ever-ready doll. You know, we just put a battery in and we go. And it's not. It's, it's one of the most complicated, most difficult to reproduce pieces of equipment on the planet. And it stands to reason that it requires servicing. So, A, you've got to be willing to service it. Then, B, okay, so they've agreed to service their body. This is the next step. Can you imagine everybody in the 20-kilometre radius of where you live took their car to the same service provider on the same, you know, the 9 to 10 a.m. time slot, and the service provider and his assistants ran the same service on all 50 vehicles that were turned up in that time slot. Would people tolerate their vehicle have the same service as the other 49 vehicles that lived in their, in their zip code? Yeah, exactly. That's what circuit training is. Good analogy. That's it. But they would say they wouldn't. They said, no, my vehicle's different than your vehicle. I've got different needs in my car. I need to have a service that's relevant to my car. I'll run a diagnostic tool on my car, uh, or my my mechanic will, and he'll tell me, you know, it's time to do this, it's time to do that, it's time to do this. But we don't do that to our bodies. We've got this really messed up belief that we've got an inherent right to breathe and that our musculoskeletal system has an inherent obligation to locomote. It doesn't, and it won't continue to do so pain-free. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so if people aren't so, willing to, to service their bodies, then you know, they, they, they'll be great services, they'll be great um, candidates for you know, the medical industry. And then you know, the, someone that has had a hip replacement or a, or a shoulder or a back surgery or anything like that, um, you know, do you believe you can get them to a similar sort of standard that they've, they've been in the past? Well, there's a, there's a few variables there, but the first variable is one that very few people recognise, and that this is a saying, have you can't realistically expect to successfully re- rehabilitate a condition in the same environment that it was created in. Right. So, so most injuries are created by decision-making of the person. You know, these are the contributing factors, 
you know, genetics impact, activity, blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, it's a decision-making process. They ignore pain and they fail to find a solution to sum it up. So with, with, those, with those failings in mind, you've had someone fix it for you, which you have to heal your own body. Nobody fixes it for you. But let's say you've gone in there and had the joint replacement, but you keep making the same poor decisions. Um, I have no hope for them. So it, yeah, it, exactly. I'm not just talking about rehab, I'm talking about all injuries. The first step of, of rehabilitation is why did it happen? And, and yeah. you've got to own it. And, and no one wants to own it. I can get, I'll give you a great example of that in a second. Um, and, and then secondly, how am I going to change to prevent that happening again? And we, we've got to address those two things before we can even bother about the mechanics of rehabilitation and, and as far as where we're going to get you. Like they're, they're irrelevant if you don't solve the first two. You know, we're in a, another epidemic that's happening in the world is muscle tears. And I'm talking about chunks of muscle being ripped off the bone. We're in an epidemic. Yeah. It's, it's just mind-blowing. And when I talk to people, and I ask, well, why did it happen? And they, 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 they look at me like I've got three heads. And they say, well, bloody obvious, because I lifted a lot of weight. Well, well no. People have been lifting that sort of weight for a long time. And they're not all ripping their biceps mm. out. Um, you know, yeah. I, had a, I had one about 15 years ago. He said to me, and I've just ruptured my ACL on, on the skiing. And I said, well, how did it happen? He said, well, Ian, you know, didn't you read? I said, I was skiing. I said, yeah, but how did it happen? Mm. <laughs> because yeah. skiing doesn't mean you've got to blow your ACL. If your ACL blew, there's a reason for it. And, and that's where the, 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 my, my perceptions of paradigms about injuries and others are maybe a bit different. But I believe if you're in great condition, A, you're going to fall less. And B, that when you do fall, you'll have the ability to tolerate the stresses and the extreme ranges and, and, and if you're not in as good condition you've got to fall more and if your, your joints aren't uh, flexible then they're going to snap early I mean I had my son crash on a motorbike track a few weeks ago right in front of me at 80 plus kilometres an hour and he ended up hitting the fence and it is, apart from the fact that it wasn't much fun to watch I, I, like it happened literally in front of me, it was 4 metres from me and I saw his, his uh, left, left left shoulder hyperextend beyond what a human should do and I saw his head extend yeah. beyond what it because when his when his helmet hit the the, the um the, the railing the fence so I knew at that time where his injuries were because I've had a chance to, mm. to watch injuries in sport obviously but I was very confident um in the fact that his conditioning was such that he would be different than the majority the majority would have ruptured their shoulder ligament and or dislocated their mm. shoulder as the only coping mechanism and they would yeah. have had potentially compression fracture of, of, the, of the cervical vertebra from the hyperextension and you know he, he had not, none of them so and that's just a personal case i can give you more any more but the bottom line is my 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 ideas about why people are injured and, and how is different than theirs and if they're not willing to embrace those possibilities then i don't have much hope for them and that's where, like, you look at uh, a child generically, they're soft, they're flexible, they haven't had the, the fascia, uh, you know, dehydration that goes on in the, in the, the decreased mobility. So they bounce. You know, they bend, they stretch. Whereas, whereas as we age, you know, we lose that ability to bend and stretch. Oh, believe me, when I went over the bonnet of a motor car um, a few years ago and I was thinking to myself, I'm a bit old for this, as I hit hit the bitumen, <laughs> hit, hit the bitumen like, uh, like that police motorcyclist in... Um, uh, there was a, the Bourne, the Bourne, uh, was it the Bourne Adventure or the Bourne? Yeah. There, there identity a, or the Bourne Identity, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the first part in the movie, and I, when I saw it again after, I said, "That's me, that's me." But anyway, you know, I know, <laughs> I know, you know, as you're hitting the ground, thinking, "Geez, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, I could have survived this." But the bottom line is, humans have the ability to to retain that 
mobility and that to a greater extent uh, the soft tissue fluid that's a bigger challenge um, through the aging process but retaining your range of movement is is an option and it's available to all of us but we've got to be willing to do it you know it's not the thing about uh, you know, our ever-evolving world is people just want things faster and faster and faster. And I haven't worked out yet how to how to really service your body faster, faster. You know, like the four-minute workout to the the forty-second the, the workout to the four-second workout. You know, it's not really going to work. So if you want to retain that that um, youthfulness in your body, you got to be prepared to pay your dues. Yeah, and like. Sort of moving forward, what do you what do you hope people sort of uh, take out of this and, and and you know learn moving forwards? I don't have a, I don't have a lot of hope for humans, and I don't mean to be negative. I think um, was it Schweitzer or or similar? Someone I remember who it was was a, a very high profile person saying a very good thing. He said, uh, I, "I I hope for the best, but I you know kind of expect a lot less." and yeah, you know, I'm very optimistic about what a human can do. I'm not as optimistic about what they will do as a mass. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, right. So then you're ultimately just going to put out your information to hopefully leave some breadcrumbs for people to either accept or reject. Absolutely, that's exactly what it is. You're just going to leave what the breadcrumbs, the paper trail, the opportunities there. You know, the opportunity's been there for some time. I mean, you, you look back even in, say, the bodybuilding genre, and you look back at Reg Park. I've got a picture of Reg Park hanging in my gym from 1949. Reg Park was standing on the beach, Waikiki Beach, with a with um, the mountain in the background. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember. Anyway, it's, it's, it's 1949. He had a phenomenal physique. I mean, we've known for a long time how to get big and strong. It's, it's not a... You know, it's, it, the information's been around a while, so... Yeah, and having said that, you know, Pilates developed his concepts over 100 years ago, and what's being done today is it may not necessarily be what Pilates there. So realistically, I, I also believe that humans don't embrace uh, quickly. So what Linus Pauling sought to prove in his scientific studies between 1974 and 1978, that's 50 years ago, has yet to be embraced. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think maybe another 50 years. So... I, my what my goal is to place enough artifacts in place there so that somewhere in the subsequent 100 years if I do my job well enough in terms of if I record my experiences well enough that there'll be an opportunity for people to embrace in a similar way that they're now embracing yoga or Pilates and I'm not endorsing them but I'm saying that they're they're latent embraces yes yeah no that's good that's very good um, and is there anything that you'd recommend people to do to improve their life, to get more out of it? Absolutely. Lose the stinking thinking. So the, the, the garden of the mind is the one that needs the most work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, awesome. time spent in personal development is probably the most valuable thing anyone can do. Uh, you know, it's as simple as studying you know, Jim Rohn or you know, someone who, who, who is... A great philosopher who who learned how to say so much with so few words. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who, exactly. who, who they can learn from, but um, that's my recommendation to people as a number one activity, and that's typically what I do with athletes: is that I change their mind as uh, I seek to change their mind in terms of the whole outlook on life. Is well, by being in my company, they don't really have a choice because I keep um, moving the furniture in their mind. 
Do you have a favourite quote or a favourite saying? Um, I have a lot of things. I don't know if you'd call any of them favourite. I certainly don't um, you know, want to be too too limited or, or narrow. So I, I, nothing jumps out at me as being as, as favourite, but uh, there's a lot of them out there. I was raised on sayings. Um, mm, you know, mm. in, in an era when people use sayings as a way of teaching. Yeah. Well, it's all the, uh, like I, I believe a good teacher teaches in metaphors as well. Mm. Um, and you learn by accident, and then all of a sudden you just you find you've got a big dictionary in your mind. Mm-hmm. That's the path, and that's the Taoist teaching model that we, we do tend to emulate somewhat. Yeah, no, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Like, I, um, yeah, I don't really have much more to, to ask or sort of uh, talk to you about because, yeah, I think this has been great. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your contribution to this artifact. Uh, we'll get it up on our uh, KSI radio as a, as a podcast. And you've, you've done a great service to you know, the sort of questions you've asked and allowing us to dialogue in ways that I believe is very useful for those in the world who seek to embrace. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. And it's, um, it's good. Like, you know, you've been very uh, generous with your time and your information. And, yeah, I think, I think uh, we collectively uh, need to appreciate the people that have been the, the pioneers in the field. Uh, and, yeah, I, 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 on behalf of everyone in the human race, I apologise for how much you've been... Uh, not necessarily appreciated or, or uh, accepted. Um, and, mate, I look forward to the, the change going on in the future. Well, that is very, very good of you. That it shows great human qualities, and I'm very impressed. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, from what I do, if, if, if I wasn't pushing the envelope, then I wasn't, I'm not really fulfilling my potential. So if, from the pioneer space, you've got to accept that you're going to upset people. or There, you, you know, so it, there is going to be some knocks. Absolutely. And, and, and if... I, I, I see that as, as part of the church. In fact, I actually see this confirmation that I'm on track. I know it sounds a bit weird, but um, I, don't, I don't do a contrarian for the sake of it. But, you know, if, if, and this is what I say to the athlete in, in my own mind. If I'm giving you what everyone else is giving the athlete, where's our competitive advantage? I, I want to be so far ahead of the game. So what I do is I develop for the athlete, and then I turn around after about a decade, and then I'll teach it. I won't teach it shorter than a decade because I want to, I want to confirm it well enough so that I, I'm not going off tangent. So what I teach is generalised principles that never change. And so mm. the, the pursuit of excellence for the athlete is then converted for the, for the use of the broader humanity. And it, as such, you know, to, to be the best in the world, you're probably going to be a bit ahead of what everyone else is doing. And so, you know, realistically, the world's not, never really ready for what I'm going to teach, but it's my job to, be, to record it, be patient, and... Um, <laughs> Maybe get a few waves from the grave, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, the, you know, some of the some of the best teachers, mate, their uh, their their legacy has lived on longer than they have. Well, that's that's the that's the best measurement, isn't it? And that's, yeah, absolutely, that's absolutely. Best because we'll have short lives, relatively speaking, but our impact can be much broader. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Excellent. Well, appreciate Darren, and so will the world. Absolutely. Thanks, buddy. And, uh, yeah, good luck with it all. Thank you. We'll chat. Okay. Cheers, mate. Bye.